Good morning. Good morning. Boy, thank you for that. I don't know who said that back to me. Somebody over here, but that was very sweet. Um, <clears throat> this morning, we're uh, returning to the questions Jesus asked one more time before going into Advent. Um, we, we have two questions left. We'll pick them up after this one. We'll have two questions left that we'll pick up in January, uh, but we'll take a break for Advent. And these are two, this morning Jesus is asking this essentially the same question twice in two parables back to back. These are the two parables that directly precede the parable of the prodigal son. This is the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Let's look at it together. This is Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found that my sheep was lost. And just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until he finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Jesus, you you tell stories that uh, only get more and more beautiful the more we look at them. And so I pray uh, not just that that might occur to us this morning as we study your word, but that you, uh, you yourself, would become only more lovely to us in our heads and in our hearts, uh, that, we would, um, that we would consider just who you are and what you have done and what you promised to us. Uh, would you help us to believe these things? And I pray that you would help me to love these friends well and to speak in complete fidelity to your word. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So earlier in Jesus' ministry, we're in Luke chapter 15 here, but all the way back in Luke chapter 5, almost at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, there's there's a very similar story. You'll find a similar story. And it was when Jesus was recruiting his disciples. He was calling them to, to go with him. He has already brought in Simon Peter and James and John into the fold. They're with him. And then the next thing he does is he goes up to a tax collector, a guy named Levi. Um, and uh, and it, it, like, it's a short conversation. It's not really a conversation. Pretty much Jesus goes up to this tax collector and he says, follow me. And, it, and the verse says that he did exactly what Simon Peter and James and John did. It says that he left everything, he rose, and followed him. So all of them did the same thing. They left their belongings, their work, their past, really their identity, 
behind and began following Jesus. But before they left, Levi decides to throw Jesus a party. And so he gathers all his tax collector friends up and they get together at his house and he has a feast and there you will find the same people grumbling that are grumbling in this passage. You'll see tax, sorry, you'll see Pharisees and you'll see their scribes and their, their complaint is the same. This, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, why is this such a big deal for them? Well, first, because he's not talking just about going to have dinner with somebody. He's talking about the formation of a relationship. That's what table hospitality represents in the book of Luke. Look how it's phrased. He receives sinners and eats with them. This is the, the formation of some kind of commitment or relationship that's, that's happening under their very nose. And the second reason is this, and it would have been understood by everybody, and it's that it was almost universally understood over the course of centuries that tax collectors were a scandalous group of people. That's who they were, and that's how everybody saw them, Uh, and that's really not an exaggeration. I found a quote from Cicero. He was a first century uh, Roman academic philosopher. He was a writer and an orator. He was known for... uh, you know, debating publicly. And this is, what, this is what he said about tax collectors. He said they ransack houses, they exact unjust decrees, and they terrify merchants. That's, that's what he said. And then four centuries later, there's a pastor named uh, St. John of Chrysostom who was in uh, Constantinople. Uh, and he said, essentially, he did it, he did, he did it in a sermon, y'all. He, he actually was talking about tax collectors in a sermon, and he, said, he called them the personification of licensed violence, of legal sin, and of specious greed. That's four centuries of opinions, like, you know, about, like, universally shared in Roman culture, okay? Now, if the view of them was low for Romans... It was even worse for Jews, okay? Because a Jewish tax collector was seen as a turncoat Jew who extorted his Jewish neighbors beyond what they were legally allowed to tax for their own benefit and for the sake of the Roman Empire. They were considered turncoat Jews. And they were thought so low of by the Pharisees that, one, their testimony wasn't allowed in Jewish courts, And two, their alms were even refused in the synagogues. Now, that's a big deal. You see a synagogue turning down, you know, the donation or something, you know it's a big deal, right? And so what's shocking about this isn't just that the Pharisees had this opinion about what Jesus is up to. That's not shocking. Uh, What's shocking is that Jesus seems so out of sync with the prevailing opinions around him. But Jesus seems completely unfazed by any of this. To him, their incredulity is really just evidence of things they don't understand. About who he is, what he's doing, and why he's there. So what does he do? He tells a parable. Actually, he tells several parables. These are only two of them. That try to make sense for them of what he's doing, why he's doing it, And what all of this tells us about the character of God. What he's doing, why he's doing it, and what this tells us about God. Let's start with what he's doing. Back in Luke 5, when Jesus is hanging out with Levi, 
Pharisees and scribes start grumbling. That's when Jesus said in response, he said um, that famous quote that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What he's doing is he's borrowing a metaphor in order to explain what he's up to. Well, Jesus is very much doing the same thing, he, he's, he's, except he's telling stories that explain it. Uh, and what he's doing is telling stories, both of them almost identical with each other, that explain that Jesus is someone who has a burden for something lost, okay? A burden for something lost. You have a shepherd who loses one of his flock, and you have a woman who loses one of her coins. Now, any shepherd that was in the crowd that heard this story would have known just how helpless a sheep would be in the Judean countryside, okay? It was, uh, it was treacherous territory. It was probably only a matter of time before a sheep got injured uh, or got stuck somewhere or came across the path of a predator. It was just only a matter of time. So shepherds, when they go sh- searching for lost sheep, they do it, they have to do it with a certain sense of urgency. And they know that the sheep can't find his way back like some animals can. Now, when a woman goes looking for the lost coin, it's helpful to understand just what the challenge is here. You would think, like, did it fall in a gutter or something? Like, how do you lose a coin? Well, the issue is, is that ancient homes were built out of mud brick and clay, and, uh, and they would have had dirt floors. They were almost complete, almost exclusively complete without windows. It would be dark inside this home at all times. There was almost always a lamp burning and you had these dirt floors that would have been covered in straw. So you can kind of understand how a coin might get lost in all of that straw. So what happens? She sets about the search with a certain sense of urgency. One person called this a whirlwind of organized persistence. I I love that. And so she has to sweep up the straw and go looking for it in every nook and cranny. And it takes a while before she can actually find the, uh, the coin. And Jesus, what Jesus is saying, and this matters to you and to me, is that just like the shepherd sets about searching for each individual sheep, he cares about each one, the shepherd does. And just like the woman cares about each one of her coins, so do I care about each person that's sitting around this table right now. That's Jesus' claim about what he's doing. He is on a search and rescue mission, seeking to recover what was lost. Now, this would have been revolutionary for the Pharisees. Because to them, you don't go seeking people. They come to you. In fact, there was a, there's a Jewish New Testament scholar, highly respected, a guy named C.G. Montefiore. This is what he says. He says, these parables were revolutionary because while the rabbis agreed that God would welcome a repentant sinner, the idea that God seeks sinners would have been a new insight for them. But here's the thing. It shouldn't have been revolutionary to them. Because in a lot of ways, God has been declaring that he is a searching, seeking, rescuing God uh, the entire time since the fall happened. I gave you a passage in Ezekiel 34, chapter, or sorry, Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 11, that, it, that that passage is all about God's commitment to go searching and rescuing his sheep. What does he say? He says, I, I myself 
will search for my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. Psalm 139 says the same thing. He says there's nowhere we can go where God is unwilling to come get us. If we go up to the heavens, he is there. If we sleep in the depths, he is there. If we fly to the sun, he is there. There's, There's nowhere God is unwilling to go in his pursuit for his sheep. God is a searching God and God is a rescuing God. And what Jesus is saying is that he is present among them as our seeking, searching, rescuing Savior. And so it just makes sense that Jesus would be receiving sinners and eating with them because what he's saying is that these are the people that I'm here for. Like, this is why I'm here. The real problem, he's saying, is that you gave up on them a long time ago. Years ago, it feels like forever ago, um, and I won't tell you how long ago it was, but, but you know when you're a very young adult, you're in like one of your first homes uh, that you live in, you know, kind of in early years with some of your friends, you know, where do you get your furniture? Well, you get it at Goodwill probably. And so we loaded up our, we loaded up our house with all these old couches that were very worn out. And uh, they, you know, some of these couches, when you sat in them, they sank all the way down. You know what I'm talking about? And this was back when, uh, this kind of dates me a little bit, but this was back when you actually carried change in your pocket. And so what would happen is if you had anything in your pocket, that change would actually fall out of your pocket and into the couch, Right. And I had a friend who this happened to so much that he, whenever he came over, he'd sit down on that couch and you could hear it. You could hear not just the coins falling out of his pocket, but the coins banging up against a pile of coins that were already in the couch. And he began calling that couch the bank, right? He said, I just made a deposit is what he would do like when we all hear it. And it was kind of silly and it was kind of fun. But you know how often we went looking for those coins? Never, never, right? Because they weren't worth that much to us. That's what Jesus is saying the real scandal is here. He's saying, you Pharisees and you scribes wrote these people off a long time ago. You never went searching for them because they, didn't, they weren't worth it to you. To you, to you, He was saying they were like coins falling out of your pocket. You lost them and you weren't burdened for them. And now I am here. I am now here to do what you wouldn't do. That's what he's saying. He came with a burden for the lost. And the question we have to wrestle with is why? What compels Jesus to do what he did? Because, listen, the cost of this mission is great. We have to ask that question because rescuing, especially in these two passages, is incredibly costly. I mean, you think about this shepherd who goes looking for his sheep. When they do, they find a sheep that's almost, uh, that's, well, probably completely unwilling to come with them. It ran away from them for a reason and now they're scared, right? So you go up to the sheep. It is hard to get a sheep willing to come with you. And you probably have come across a sheep that's injured in some way or, uh, or weak, weakened in some way. 
And so what happens is, is that this good shepherd has to take the sheep and lay it across its shoulders and bring the sheep, maybe it's fighting, maybe it's not, but carry it uh, all the way back to the flock to bring it all the way home. And this action understood by many became a dominant theme for understanding what it looks like that Jesus comes and rescues us. Uh, in fact, King David, once a shepherd himself, this is the very metaphor that he uses in Psalm 28. He says that, oh, save your people and bless your heritage. And then he says, be their shepherd and carry them forever. He's describing a shepherd carrying a sheep that's unwilling to care or unable to carry itself. And then many have observed that that in this text is actually a way of understanding the way Jesus rescues us. That for us is actually a picture of his rescuing salvation given to us. A man named Philip Melanchthon, who was Martin Luther's right-hand man, he said this. He said, inwoven in this text, there is a sweet significance of the passion of Christ. He transfers the burden He transfers to himself the burden of us. And how does Jesus carry us? You. Think about this. How does Jesus carry us? By going to the cross and giving himself up where it says that the burden of our sin was laid across his shoulders. First Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like lost sheep. You were straying like lost sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That's the picture. That's the picture of the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. It's truly staggering to consider. But here's what's even more staggering to consider. The joy with which he does it. The willingness and the joy. What, what's the look on that shepherd's face as he carries his sheep back home? If you've ever, uh, if you ever visit Rome, if you've, already been to Rome, then you need to go back and take a look at this. But if you ever visit Rome, go to the Lateran Museum and then ask someone to help you find the statue of the Good Shepherd. Itself is pretty incredible. It's the oldest statue, or oldest existing statuary from the Western Church. It dates from about the third century. We're not exactly sure where we found it, but it's thought that it was uncovered in the catacombs. But when you look at it, what you'll see is a man walking with a staff in one hand and the other hand on a sheep draped over its shoulders like a good shepherd. Um, But that's not actually what grabs you about this whole statuary. What grabs you is what one person called the sweetness of his countenance. And I think that's the picture that Jesus wants you to see, that this shepherd walking home with a sheep draped over his shoulder, not with a grimace, not yelling at the sheep, reminding it how much of a burden it is, but with a smile on his face. How did he put it in verse five? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, what? 
rejoicing. Hebrews chapter 12. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set, that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Why did he do it? Jesus is not just our rescuing Savior. He's also our rejoicing Savior. And you know that this is real joy because it very quickly becomes a, a uh, shared joy. You see this with the searching woman, the searching man, almost identical verses in verse 9 and verse 6. They both go back home. They call together their friends and their neighbors. They say to them, rejoice with me for I have found my coin that was lost or I have found my sheep that was lost. And so here's the thing I really want you to hear. I really need you to hear this. And I think you really need to hear this too, is that if you belong to God and with faith in Jesus Christ, listen, you're a cause for his joy. That when you repent and turn your heart toward them, I want you to know there, a party was thrown in heaven. St. Bernard of Clairvaux says that the tears of repentant sinners forms the wine of angels. It's this poetic literature that says Jesus rejoices over you as something that was lost and then was found again. Can you hear this? Can you hear that? You know, many times we have to fight to make people happy with us, but God's fundamental disposition toward you is one of deep love and one of deep joy. His love, your redemption, are compelling enough that Jesus walks the path of unrighteousness, even though he had no unrighteousness of his own, Because in the end, what it does is it brings him joy. And all of this tells us something about God that that, that can almost be too hard to, to understand. Did you notice how when Jesus asks his questions, we're studying the questions, right? When Jesus asks his questions, he asks it as a rhetorical question. You know, that, like this is the first one of those we've done. Most of the time when Jesus asks a question, he's actually asking an open-ended question that's designed to make us think. Like, why are we anxious or why do we doubt? But this time he phrases it as a rhetorical question. Like, who wouldn't understand this? Who wouldn't go searching? And who wouldn't rejoice? But you see, here's the thing. The math behind these, either of these stories doesn't really make sense. And, and just about every person I read on this passage made the same comment, that it doesn't, it, it's, it's actually something that people might have thought about and thought, I don't know, I don't know if I agree with that. Because you look at, look at the shepherd, first of all, you see that he has a hundred sheep, okay? And he loses only one of them. A hundred sheep means that he's a man of, uh, of modest means, and one sheep is probably something that any shepherd would have, you know, considered a calculated cost over the years. They kind of would have budgeted, that it, budgeted it in that they would have lost one or two or, or three sheep, and that actually might end up being a good year. The woman, for her, the, the coin actually it represents a much more significant loss. Uh, one of those coins was a drachma. It was worth about one day's uh, of a laborer's wage. It also, we see, is a tenth of her whole wealth. But, uh, but what happens, she finds the coin, and then she throws a party. I read, I read a story about a, a, a young boy who was reading this whole passage in, uh, um, what do you call it, a, a confirmation class, and he, he, he yells, this makes no sense. <laughs> she spent more on the party than the coin was worth. 
And Jesus is saying something to us about the incredulity of the gospel. Because both of these stories are about someone losing something that matters a lot more to them than it would for other people. In the economies of God, the cost of grace is steep. And no one can look at Jesus and what he did for his sheep and say that wasn't costly. But according to Jesus, there is a joy that has no price tag. And just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the incredulity that God would invest so much in recovering something that meant so little to everyone else only because it meant so much to him. You know, there's a reason that tax collectors and sinners were drawn to Jesus. That they were coming to him because they felt like he had something to say to them. And they were responding to his words. And it doesn't say this in the text, but I bet that, that in this story you see sinners repenting and celebrations happening in heaven at the same time. Jesus is saying there's a party going on down here and you're missing all of it. I'm reading a book right now. Some of you have read it. Uh, Colin Hansen, Birmingham local, wrote a book about the intellectual influences of Tim Keller. He's, if you don't know, he's a pastor. He, was, he passed away recently, but he pastored Redeemer Church in New York City for a long time. And that's a church where, uh, that experienced real revival. A lot of people came to that church uh, and either they, um, they, <laughs> either they recovered their faith or they had new faith in Jesus, they learned about Jesus, and they converted to Christianity over time. And in the book, um, Colin Hansen records one of Keller's observations. He says this, he says that whenever the church recovers the gospel and enjoys revival, the so-called good people uh, who take pride in their morality leave the church in outrage. And meanwhile, outcasts flock in to hear the message of grace. What did they hear? They were hearing something that was worth celebrating. They were hearing something that was honest about sin, but even more profound about grace. They heard a story about wandering and lost people that God was so deeply burdened for. And they heard about a rescuing Savior who rejoices over them with his love. That's the story that they heard. And so let me just ask you. Are you acquainted with this joy that Jesus is talking about? Like, are you acquainted with that? Can you believe that that's true? Can you, believe, can you share in this joy? It's true joy. It is shared joy. Can you, are you acquainted with a, a, just a fundamental root of joy in the gospel truth that Jesus came searching for you and loves you and rescues you and celebrates you? Are you acquainted with that joy? Are you drawn to that joy? Does that joy make sense to you? Let me close this way. There's a story that surfaced earlier this month about the daring rescue of a sheep. Okay, some of you have probably seen this. The headline was uh, Britain's Loneliest Sheep. And uh, it was at the, the sheep was trapped at the bottom of a Scottish cliff. Okay, there's very little space between the end of the cliff and when the sea starts, and nobody really knows how the sheep got down there. Um, 
Apparently, it's easier for it to get down than it is for it to get up, but there's this sheep that was trapped. And, uh, and we, apparently, it's been known about for about two years. Some sea kayakers saw it and took pictures of it. And then uh, many organizations came out uh, and looked at this sheep and, uh, and were determined to rescue the sheep. But when they saw how steep the cliff was and how treacherous the geography was, they were like, it's too much. We can't do it. It's too dangerous. Like, we, we can't do it. Uh, the, the Scotland's SPCA, the Coast Guard even looked at it. Several other people looked at it and said, it's just too much. The cost is too much. And then five farmers decided they were going to get this done. Listen, if you want something done, call a farmer, okay? They'll find a way. And one of those farmers was actually a sheep farmer. It was a shepherd. And uh, there's a really cool video of it. It's about a 20-minute video on YouTube. You can look at it, but it is crazy, okay, what they did. It was really dangerous. They, like, lowered a winch cable down from the top and went down with it themselves. They put their lives, they really put their lives on the line, all to rescue the sheep and bring it back up. The sheep had, like, so much, 20 pounds of wool on it, you know, when they brought it up. It was just incredible. And even, I, like, looking at it, I asked the question, like, why is this worth it? Like, why is it worth it to them? Well, really, it's, it's worth it to them. It started to make sense to me toward the end of the video when they started celebrating what had been done. When God celebrates faith, he's celebrating something that he's done. And they started celebrating what, the, what had been done because it's the character of their vocation. To them, every sheep matters. This is one of the things Jesus is saying to us right now is that every sheep matters. Every sheep matters to him. It's part of the character of his vocation as our Savior. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, you are rescuing Savior. Oh, you are searching Savior. I pray that you would find us and rescue us. That you would hold us in faith. Uh, that you would bind us in love to you. And uh, that we would, you would teach us to trust your promises. I pray that you would help us now as we worship you, that you would fill our hearts with grateful praise. And I ask these things in your name, our Savior, our King, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen.